Berlin, 1954. And somewhere beneath the sandy soil, in cramped conditions, and working in absolute silence, men of the American CIA, Staff D, in cooperation with men of the British Secret Intelligence Service, begin the first excavations of what would become one of the most audacious, secretive, and daring operations of the Cold War. An operation to take place in the city of spies itself, Berlin. An operation that, if successful, would illuminate the secretive world of communism through the light of information. An operation that had the potential to allow the British and Americans to undermine their ideological enemies through use of the Soviets' own lines of communication. Yet, it was always to be remembered that dangers lurk in the dark, and any covert story from the Cold War must involve spies and their counterparts, traitors. So ease into history as we discover this audacious Operation Gold with Tunnel Traitor King Gold. Achtung, Achtung. Here is the Sendestelle Berlin im Vorkhaus. Meine Damen und Herren. Welcome to the Achtung History Podcast. Written and presented by myself, Simon J. James. This week, the concluding part of Tunnel Traitor King Gold. Information had been flowing in from the east through the patch on the phone lines that operated in the late evening and early morning hours. The patch that had been established within the very heart of the Soviet communication lines in Berlin-Lichtenberg. O'Brien's recruits, from technicians to workers within the exchanges, to the women known only as the Nummermädchen, had proved a great success. Yet the patch was still only small and due to the sensitive nature of its location, could only be used during the dead of night in Berlin, when activity was at its lowest. Yet the need for information in the summer of 1953, the need to know what the Soviets might have planned or how they might react to a situation was suddenly going to be of even greater concern. Berlin in the 1920s held the moniker the Welthauptstadt, the world capital. But even with the destruction of the great city in the Second World War, that moniker did not fade. However, it was no longer held because of the nightlife of the city where dance halls populated so many of the streets. Entertainment venues and their bright facades lit up the night sky and drink flowed with gaiety as America floundered in prohibition. No, rather now, Berlin was the world capital because it was at the confluence of the tides of capitalism and communism. Neither having been elected, but on having been cast with force. The 16th of June, 1953, the leadership of the so-called workers' paradise of East Germany was shook by a striking workforce. 
an unpopular implementation of Sovietization had led to a fall in the quality of living. Discrimination against private enterprise and an increase in everyday product prices, coupled with a decrease in wages, had sown discontent amongst many of the German population of the DDR. In response to a strain on the economy of the nation, incurred as the ruling SED party claimed from the construction of socialism, a 10% increase in the work quota was to be implemented on a compulsory basis across all state-owned factories. For the workers, this meant one thing, working harder, but for the same wage. However, with the death of Stalin in March of 1953, the new collective leadership of the Soviet Union, shocked by the state of the DDR and the increasing emigration of the population, many of whom were using Berlin as a springboard to the West, sought to reverse many of the policies of the SED leadership of Walter Ulbricht and Otto Grotewoll. This reversal would end collectivization and decrease the pressure on small business, but crucially, it would not lift the 10% quota increase. For the workers, this meant that those that stood to profit were not the workers upon which this so-called paradise was built, but rather those that stood to benefit were the bourgeois and farmers. The Soviet proclamation of these changes was printed in the party newspaper of the DDR, the Neues Deutschland. Those who read the paper were shocked, both from the party and the wider public. The regime was being openly criticized by Moscow. But when on the 15th of June 1953, workers from the new Stalin Alley construction project presented a petition to the heavily criticized Volkszentrum Otto Grotewoll demanding the decrease in working quota, Grotewoll ignored them. So on the 16th, the workers struck. 300 workers angry and annoyed, a state undermined by its puppet master, a population wanting a new lease of life. These were the conditions that existed on the 16th of June, 1953. The workers swelled in number. They moved through the streets. Stalin Alley, with its rising new buildings, the city center of Berlin, where grass now grew, where narrow streets once wound, the future and the past. Yet as they marched, they grew more demanding. Sound trucks were seized and broadcast their demands. The Politburo, worried by the weight of the crowd, revoked the work quota. But now the confidence was with the people, and this was too little and too late. But for whom? Through the night, the workers cried for free elections. Radios in the West broadcast across both Germany's the new demands. Heads in all the governments turned to look toward the DDR and to what the Soviet overlords would do. In the West, Jakob Kaiser, Federal Minister for All German Questions, whom had voted in 1933 as a member of the Reichstag in favor of giving Hitler dictatorial powers, made an appeal to the East Germans to not commit provocations. But through the night, radio and the Allied sector, or RIAS for short, broadcast the East German people's demands, but also in the night, Vladimir Zemyonov, the Soviet High Commissioner for Germany, informed the SED of his decision to mobilize the Soviet forces.
The next morning, it was not only Berlin that was swamped with the upheaval of the East German population, but every major town and city. 129 demonstrations took place across the DDR, 225,000 workers launched strikes in 332 factories. The socialist workers' paradise was not for the workers it was claimed it was for. However, as the crowds in Berlin gathered before the House of Ministries, a building formerly of the headquarters of the Luftwaffe during the Third Reich, anger grew. 25,000 people were on the Platz, where Leipzigerstrasse crossed with Wilhelmstrasse. They stretched to Potsdamer Platz, once the intersection of Europe. Lack of movement formed into bold action. 100 protesters stormed the building and foreseeing the collapse of the DDR by the seizure of power by the people, Semyonov acted. Tanks were mobilized, and once again, the sound of the tracts of the Red Army reverberated within the Berlin streets. The people formed human walls, but the tanks did not stop. Stones were thrown at steel, yet still the tanks rolled on. At the House of Ministries, the presence of the tanks cleared the square with haste, but before the headquarters of the East Berlin police, the tanks, once again met by stones, opened fire. Soon the city erupted in the sound of Soviet tank cannons firing upon the unarmed Berliners, joined by the sound later of machine guns at the hands of Soviet troops. Martial law was enacted and executions began. Thousands upon thousands were arrested by the Stasi, many murdered by the Soviet and Stasi alike throughout the night. Briefly, the people whom had found themselves in the state proclaimed the German Democratic Republic had paralyzed the leadership forced upon them. That leadership had retreated to Karlshorst, the Soviet military enclave in the east of the city. It was to Karlshorst that control passed, then to the Soviets. In the aftermath of the uprising of the people of East Berlin and East Germany, the Western governments and their respective secretive agencies were aghast at how unprepared they were in predicting the Soviet response to a movement of an occupied populace. It highlighted how dark the world had become since the erection of the 1952 inner German border, even if Berlin still remained open itself. Yet, most importantly, it offered a reaffirmation. A reaffirmation of the need for an operation as audacious as Operation Gold, but also that the Soviet base in Karlshorst was central to the Soviet occupation of Eastern Germany, and, therefore, the lines of communication that ran to it were worthy of an operation that was now scheduled to cost $15 million, or the equivalent of $153 million in 2021 money. In Berlin, however, the 1953 uprising had swallowed a considerable proportion of the resources of the CIA Berlin operations base. There was a need from up top to report on the conditions within the DDR. The gathering of intelligence had to be balanced between the quick gains of low-risk but low-value information, such as informants within the East, the running of spies and counter-espionage activities, with the high-risk value enterprises such as Operation Gold. To push forward with the operation, William King Harvey, the chief of Berlin Base, 
and Walter O'Brien expanded their very selective need to know operation to a third party, Hugh Montgomery. Montgomery, a native of Springfield, Massachusetts, was a Harvard graduate, but more so he had already experience in the counterintelligence game. During the Second World War, he had enrolled as a paratrooper, but an injury saw him transferred to the Office of Strategic Services Counterintelligence Branch, known simply as X2. In Berlin, Harvey introduced Montgomery to O'Brien, and the pair were to take responsibility for much of the operation. O'Brien introduced Montgomery to many of the informants and contacts that he had garnered in the East, and he, Montgomery, was to become the personal handler for a proportion of them. However, in this respect, in those first few months of his involvement in the operation, he did not know what the goal was. He had no idea that it was all leading towards the digging of a tunnel. By August, plans for the tunnel that would be at the heart of Operation Gold were beginning to take place. Montgomery and O'Brien's informants within the East had identified that the most promising cables as a source of information were numbered 150, 151, and 152. These three cables ran beneath a road by the name of the Schönefelder Chalzé. This north-to-south road hid the cables beneath the roadway, but most importantly, it linked the Soviet command in Wunsdorf with the army command in Korshorst, where the DDR politicians had retreated to on the 17th of June, 1953. These lines, Harvey hoped, would be the lines that would supply the key information that would give America the upper hand in this Cold War. Now the decision was made of which lines to tap, the question just remained of where. In his book, The Secret History of the CIA, Joseph John Trento writes, Galen suggested to Harvey that they dig the tunnel on the southern rim of Berlin at Altklinika a key junction for telephone cables in East Berlin, and an excellent location for clandestine operation for several reasons. It was a swampy, largely abandoned industrial area that had been heavily bombed during the war, and the only inhabitants were homeless refugees living in shacks they had thrown together. Finally, a new US radar station was already under construction nearby. Since the Soviets were aware of the radar station, the new digging, the Allies fought, would not look suspicious. Unfortunately, this account from Joseph John Trento is little more than a flight of fantasy for a number of very specific reasons. Firstly, by Galen, he means Reinhard Galen, a former Wehrmacht lieutenant general, whom had been tasked with establishing the Galen organization of ex-Wehrmacht and SS officers who acted as a CIA affiliate for anti-communist activities. However, Harvey's deputy at the time in Berlin, David Murphy, would write many years prior to Trento, in Battleground Berlin, there is no suggestion from available records or from the memoirs of individuals whom participated in the project from its earliest inception that CIA's tunnel operation ever involved the Galen organization. Secondly, Trento's geography of Berlin is outstandingly wrong. Firstly, the area was not swampy, rather the land was well-maintained, wide and open, and was well-farmed. The roads were situated beneath sycamore trees that cast a shade down upon the smooth tarmac, and rather than an industrial area heavily bombed, the area was more a patchwork of suburban villages separated by thin tracts of land. The houses quaint, semi-detached cottages with high-pitched roofs 
and shuttered windows. There was not a factory in sight, nor a swamp to sink into underfoot. Never mind refugee self-assembled shacks. No radar station was under construction either. The site, therefore, that was selected was open to the air. It had a clear line of sight through well-maintained fields with only one thing standing in its way, a small and quaint cemetery. Only one final act of administration remained, which was to gain approval from Alan Dawes, the director of Central Intelligence. For this, the Berlin team of Harvey, Montgomery and O'Brien worked together with Frank Rowlett, who would make frequent trips from Washington for meetings regarding the operation in Frankfurt. Rowlett would, in these meetings, take highly detailed notes by the way of a typewriter, his fingers working so fast that the noise of the hammers of the typewriter sounded as one and faded into the background, a gentle hum in the hive of activity. Together, these four drew together a proposal. This proposal was then dispatched to Dawes under the cover memorandum from General Truscott, whom was responsible for controlling the CIA's expanding network of agents worldwide. Truscott emphasized to Dawes in the memorandum the need for the highest possible degree of security and that all knowledge of the operation should be confined to those individuals who can make a specific contribution to the success of the operation. Outlined as the purpose, Truscott wrote, To collect covertly the Soviet intelligence known to be passing over certain underground telecommunication cables that are adjacent to and accessible from the US sector of Berlin. With the information from the trio in Berlin, it was outlined what traffic passed down the line and the information they should expect to gather should the operation get the approval required. Lastly, he highlighted the known detail that the information would be gathered by a tunnel approximately 1,800 feet in length, half of which would be in the Soviet sector. But the site chosen was highly visible. There was little to no cover apart from the trees and the wall of the quaint cemetery. Therefore, it was decided three warehouses should be built. These warehouses would hide the apparatus required for the construction, whilst also being able to hide the earth extracted from the ground. For cover, these warehouses were to be built by the US Army and be labelled as an emergency equipment dispersal system. However, due to the nature of cost, these three warehouses were soon reduced to just one. It was in October of 1953 that CIA Director Dawes approved the plan and the physical work could begin. One of the engineers who remains nameless wrote in the CIA's Studies in Intelligence, Volume 52, Number 1, Once the Berlin project received a green light, design specifications had to be determined, men and materials assembled, and questions of site selection, training, and transportation answered. The big question that loomed was how to dispose of the tons of soil that would be excavated. Rough calculations showed that the amount of soil expected to be brought out from the tunnel and vertical shaft would fill to the brim more than 20 living rooms in an average American home. Security and silence dictated that not one cubic foot of soil to be removed from site. A warehouse with a basement for the storage of the excavated soil and a first floor reserved for recorders and signal equipment was the solution. 
My task began with an inspection of existing tunnels in the Washington DC area, which included utility bores, pedestrian walkways, storm drains, and railroad maintenance tunnels. From this research, I concluded that our tunnel should be six feet in diameter with a structure of steel flanged corrugated liner plates. The six foot diameter would provide comfortable working room at the tunnel face. Meanwhile, with the approval from the CIA, whom would be carrying out the organization of the tunnel, it was time to bring the British back in. The British, with tailors of the post office technical department and genius line tap, were to supply the equipment to fill the tunnel and to harvest the information gathered. It was in the same month that the tunnel was approved by Dawes and that the British were being briefed that a young Soviet man arrived in London by the name of Sergei Alexandrovich Kondrashev as an embassy for cultural relations. In reality, Kondrashev worked for the Soviet Foreign Intelligence Directive. Kondrashev, within days of his arrival, was to meet with one of the Soviet Union's most valuable assets within Britain a man known by his operational name as Diomid, a name taken from the Greek Diomedes, meaning God-like cunning. Within the first meeting between Konrashev and Diomid, Diomid emphasized his need for a camera to copy the many documents that flowed past him and provided Konrashev with information on the data from Operation Silver, the precursor to Operation Gold. The British, due to the nature of the operation, were holding more and more bureaucratic meetings. Despite the Americans taking responsibility for the tunnel construction, they, the British, still wished to understand the process by which it would be built. For those meetings, it wasn't uncommon for Harvey and others of the Central Trio in Berlin to fly to London, bringing with them engineers to explain the process, one of which was our nameless writer. At the beginning of the meeting, I started to discuss some notes I had on the unfinished mathematical analysis of the tunnel structure. Clearly, the attendees were not interested in mathematics. The discussion turned to the matter of the form of the tunnel design. The British proposed using heavy concrete blocks, which were common in the London underground. I countered with the idea of using steel liner plates, which would be lighter and easier to use in the tunnel and at the tunnel face. This proposal was accepted. The next subject was of using a shield. I did not offer an opinion because it was a topic that I felt should be discussed with Les Gross, Gross having been appointed head engineer of the tunnel ahead of the nameless source. Bill Harvey got the impression I did not know the difference between a shield and a coat of arms. Harvey and the British committee, which included John Taylor, George Blake, and head of Y section George Young, the former two mentioned in the previous episode, discussed the further details over the days between the 15th and the 18th of December. Construction of the tunnel began in a temporary building that lined the reflecting pool into which one could glance and see Abraham Lincoln's face staring back. For a tunnel to be built in Berlin, it is odd that construction began, in fact, in Washington. In Washington, Les Gross began the selection of the Corps of Engineers, officers and non-commissioned officers who would be involved in this highly secretive operation. He also began looking for a site where the liner plates and shield could be assembled as training, so that when the day came that the ground was broken in Berlin, there would be no need for talking. All those involved should know their role exactly. Gross decided on falling back on a previous location that had been used by the US for secretive experiments 
because it was remote, isolated, and predominantly unpopulated New Mexico. Meanwhile, the nameless source and Harvey flew again to London, where they traveled to a location to witness the vertical shield that was required to gain access to all the important cables. This shield was to be operated, when eventually on site, by British sappers. The sappers' famous tunnelers had, like the Americans in New Mexico, begun to construct a tunnel themselves. Whereas the Americans had chosen a location for its remoteness, the British sappers, as professional tunnels, had chosen a location in Surrey, the county to the southwest of London, because the soil makeup resembled closely that of Berlin's. With the final approval of the plans in February 1954, construction could finally begin. It began, firstly, with the construction of the warehouse to shield the covert site from prying eyes. But whilst the warehouse was under construction, Les Gross and his team of engineers turned to how they might keep the tunnel on course, bearing in mind a ground-level survey would quickly give the game away. Our nameless source. Tunnels are usually kept on line and grade by surveys conducted in the tunnel and the ground above it by transits and calibrated steel tapes. A surface survey, however, was obviously inappropriate for a secret tunnel. Having no lasers, we had to use other methods. Drawing on the best technical resources of the time, several photographic overflights were ordered. One flight used glass plates for maximum accuracy. The glass plates were sent to the agency's fledgling air photo analysis unit. They conducted air photogrammetry studies to determine distance and elevation. The engineering and geological analysis of the other photographs showed the site to be underlain by well-drained deposits of sandy loam. There was a possibility of encountering some perched water tables where a layer of impervious clay traps a small quantity of water. But this was not considered a problem. We also used a newly developed electronic distance measuring system, EDMS. An agent faked a flat tire on the side of the road by the aiming point which, working on the tire, he placed a small device on the hood of the car. The device received and transmitted data in the EDMS system. Thus, air photogrammetry and electronic measurements fixed the coordinates of the target cables. Yet it wasn't long until a problem arose. A civilian engineer contracted to the construction of the warehouse left the project in anger. Somehow his anger and the reasons for it made it to Time magazine, whom reported that the engineer had left, exclaiming, why build a cellar big enough to drive through with a dump truck? Normally, a warehouse would not have a cellar, let alone one which also had no supporting columns within. To the civilian engineer, it seemed crazy. An army chief of engineers exclaimed, it was an experiment. When in reality, the basement didn't need columns, as it was to be filled with the earth from the tunnel as the tunnel progressed. The warehouse, nevertheless, was finished by the end of August, and the civilian engineer and all non-necessary people were dismissed. Now all those on site had to do is await the arrival of the tunnel components. Les Gross had the tunnel assembled in New Mexico, dismantled and sent to Richmond, Virginia, for boxing. He got a fright when he learned the facility in Virginia was set to close down, but he was able to negotiate it, remaining open for a further 30 days. Here, all of the parts that were metal were sprayed with a rubberized compound. The rubber compound was an effort to reduce any clanking that might happen as the components were lowered into the tunnel. 
Once complete, all the components were shipped to Hamburg that was in the Federal Republic of Germany. Once in West Germany, everything was neatly loaded onto a normal goods train and dispatched without guards for Berlin, traveling through East Germany and eventually arriving in the western part of the former German capital, where it arrived without incident. The 2nd of September, the first cuts into the ground are made for the beginning of the tunnel. By the 8th of September, the diggers' feet began to splosh in water. Engineers had predicted that the water table would be almost 10 metres underground, but at less than six, water was starting to rise. A pump was brought down and began to draw the water out. A week of testing followed, and then digging resumed. The 17th of October saw the engineers pass the foundation of the warehouse above, but a new problem had arisen. David Murphy writes, Digging the tunnel was dirty work, and because the army detachment was supposed to be manning a classified electronics intelligence station, not grubbing about in the muck, it wouldn't help the cover if they were regularly seen in dirty fatigues. The army laundry did not provide enough secrecy, so a washer and dryer were installed on site. Remaining secret was of the utmost importance. Above ground, new checks were implemented, vehicles were recorded as they came and went, and soldiers inspected. Around the compound, microphones were installed to detect intruders with an added hope that the conversations of passing guards of the DDR might also be captured. When anyone such as Harvey, O'Brien, Montgomery, or any other non-regular on-site personnel visited, it was always within a closed truck. Due to the preparations made, the tunnel was advancing swiftly. Above ground, none were the wiser to the great act of espionage happening below ground. So impressed was Harvey with the progress of the tunnel and the confidence of the builders that he exclaimed that it ought to be finished by January of the following year, 1955. With this in mind, Harvey travelled to Washington to discuss what might be done if the tunnel were to be discovered. Those in Washington were impressed with the security implementations already enacted, but for the tunnel itself, it was decided a steel door would be installed between the pre-amplification area, where the signal within the cables was isolated, and the tunnel proper. This massive steel door would remain locked unless there was activity happening within the tap chamber, i.e. personnel were inside. Finally, it was approved by doors that an area roughly 11 meters inside would be mined, with fuses kept in the warehouse. In the event of an emergency breach from the east, the steel door should keep those attempting to enter at bay long enough for the mines to be charged and detonated, detonating in an area that encompassed three meters within the American sector and eight in the Soviet. Through the day and through the night, the team of engineers and sappers kept mining away at the clay subsurface of Berlin. Their tunnel covertly bridging the two worlds of communism and capitalism. Above ground, the people of Berlin meandered to and fro between the sides in an era before concrete borders rose along lines drawn on maps, unaware of the game being played out in the dark below. Finally, the underground measurements were taken. The tunnel was at the length needed as prescribed by the non-invasive surveys taken from above. It was no longer January, but actually February. In this great undertaking, the engineers and sappers had only overrun by a month to Harvey's initial estimate that the tunnel would be completed at the turn of the year. 
but now one of the most difficult moments of the operation was upon them. For most of its length, the tunnel had run almost six meters underground. But now to reach the cables, the sappers had to dig upwards and carefully. One wrong movement might cause the sandy soil above to slip and come cascading down into the vertical shaft dug to reach the cables. At this moment, surely, such a move would be a fatal one to the operation. If the land did fall in, it could easily create a depression on the surface that would be easily visible to the eyes of the East German and Soviets who patrolled the area. If they undermined the road without adequate support, the tunnel might seem secure, but the road, the Schoenfelder Chausse, also was a route for Soviet tanks weighing over 60 tons, and these could cause a collapse. Carefully, they dug upwards. This was why the sappers had been brought on to the task. Few, if any, were as skilled as they were. Gently the clay, sand, soil was removed and passed to the tunnel below. For every few centimetres they progressed, support was added, and gradually, over the course of a month, the shaft and tap chamber were formed. Then, finally, all the work seemed fruitful when the cables above were exposed. With the tunnel dug with the monetary resources of the United States, it was now to the British that the most delicate and essential part of the operation passed, placing the taps. John Wyke, whom Peter Wright would describe as the MI6's best technical operator, was chosen for the task. It was no easy feat. Wyke would have to open up the protective housing around the cables, splice the lines connecting them to Taylor's brilliant piece of kit, and then loop the cables back all without dropping a signal that might alert the Soviets or East Germans to the operation. One false move and $15 million in countless man-hours might be wasted. Wyke brought the initial segment of Taylor's tapping device to the small confines of the room in which he was to operate with the cables targeted above his head. Each of these segments were less than a meter long and tube-like in shape. In total, for this initial point, there were six, two each. One would be placed at the end of the line where the line was cut. The cables that ran from each would be looped into the tapping room and then down into the latter segment of the tunnel on the eastern side of the great steel door. Here, there were racks upon racks of specialist equipment. There were telephones, reel-to-reel -reel recorders, amplifiers, and hundreds of miles of wires looping between different pieces of equipment, all neatly stored in custom-made holders that would fit the curve of the tunnel and allow for a room still for operators to pass. From the machine, a cable then ran back up to the tap room where it was connected to a similar device that was connected to the first line cut. Here, the loop was completed. The first tap was laid in May. As soon as the final wire was connected, the machines burst into life. Needles flicked on ammeters and transformers and tuners buzzed in the glow of vacuum tubes, and immediately a specialist team in the tunnel went to work in silence. Now the West believed the East was burst open. Hello all, I just wanted to take this moment to thank all of Arts and History's patrons. Oberbürgermeisterin Munnerly, Oberbürgermeister Kolmann, Minister President Charles Kay, and Mitglieder des Landtags Achtung History, Banks. 
You too can become a Mitglieder for just one euro, an Oberbürgermeister from two euros eighty, Minister President from five, Kanzler from seven fifty, or a Koenig from ten euros a month, all by visiting patreon.com forward slash history. All your support on Patreon goes back into the podcast. So now let's get back to the episode. Over the course of the next few months, with careful and irregular intervals, Wyke added the two further taps until, in August, Operation Gold became fully operational. 81 speech circuits produced 162 reels per day of recordings, each lasting two and a half hours. 81 transcribers were hired, 30 correlators, 27 cardists, 10 people in signals, with 10 Russian typists. Most of the information gathered from the phone lines was sent to a specially constructed room in Washington, as well as the room filled with the Tsarist Russians in London. Yet, with this method, it was deemed that the flow of information might be too slow. If something happened that was of great significance, and the tape took time to travel to London and or Washington, the reaction time might make a great difference in the hotting of the Cold War. Therefore, it was deemed that a team of translators should be on site at all times to monitor in real time in case a more immediate response was required. This was proved necessary, as David Murphy remembers. This on-site capability to monitor selected circuits in real time became an important factor in site security when the army cook at the site, who did not know about the tunnel, got lost while driving from Berlin to Frankfurt am Main. Travel by car was still permitted for non-secretive military personnel, and to have forbidden it for the service staff at the site would have aroused suspicion. The cook took the autobahn east toward Frankfurt under order by mistake and was quickly taken into custody by the East German border police, Greppo. When he was reported overdue at the Helmstadt checkpoint on the autobahn through the Soviet zone, live monitoring began at the site while the US military police went through their drill of recovering a stray soldier. The on-site monitors were able to follow Greppo's actions in releasing the man that same day. So, the tunnel was proven to harvest data, and from May 1955 into the winter it continued. But when winter was around the corner, a very worrying problem began to arise. Despite the numerous air conditioning units, the heat in the tunnel began to soar. Vacuum tubes, known as valves, are known to produce a lot of heat. And with the construction and implementation of the air conditioning units, it was thought that this potential problem would have been solved. But the well-insulated tunnel for sound also acted well against letting heat dissipate until effectively the tunnel began to become warm to the touch. Berlin's winters are known for being as cold as the summers are hot. Winter winds blow from the east and deck the earth in thick blankets of snow, and the canals often freeze over. So harsh can the winters be that between 1946 and 1947, the temperatures plummeted to below minus 30 degrees Celsius, or minus 22 Fahrenheit. The Rhein froze on a segment almost 60 kilometers in length. Food perished in harbors as ships laden with goods lay trapped in ice. Therefore, there was a real risk that a tunnel so hot running beneath the land of the east when covered in snow and ice, might be warm enough to melt what rested on the ground above. If this were to happen, 
for the snow to melt in a line that followed the track of the tunnel. It would not take even a moderately bright member of the Vox Polizei, the Vopo, to understand. The line would lead directly to the American warehouse built on the sector border. To solve this issue, the unnamed CIA engineer was brought in. A chilled water air conditioning system was the only solution because there was no room for extra ducts on the sandbag benches. Such a system, including about 1,500 feet of newly developed three and a quarter inch plastic irrigation tubing, was shipped to the site. The tubing fitted nicely alongside the existing air ducts. We still needed a way to monitor the temperature in and above the tunnel. With assistance from the Office of Logistics, we checked out a company in New Jersey named Wallace and Tiernan Products Inc., primarily a manufacturer of altimeters and surveying equipment. The company also made a remote temperature recording system consisting of sensors, a data recording station, and connecting cables. We purchased the system and shipped it to Berlin. The next step involved getting the cables through the basement floor of the warehouse and connected to the recording station. This required pounding a hole through 16 inches of reinforced concrete with a star drill and hammer. It took three days before the cables were connected and operating. The first reading showed the temperatures in the ground above the tunnel were in general agreement with the readings from the sensors at the tunnel portal. However, temperatures in the ground over the equipment room were indeed elevated. Later data sent to the CIA headquarters showed that the temperature over the equipment room were dropping, almost certainly due to the supplemental cooling system. So it was a success. The tunnel was operating, and as far as the British and Americans were aware, none in the East, either Soviet or DDR, were the wiser that their own communications were being used against them. Into the winter and out into the spring of 1956, the tapes kept rolling and the translators kept listening to the words of the Soviet command. Stop. Rewind. London, 1954. A typical winter day in the faded glory and smog of the British capital. Kondrashev, the Soviet spymaster under the cover of working in cultural relations, has taken to the spy game. Diomid, the only spy he was tasked with handling, had already supplied Kondrashev with information about preceding Operation to Gold, Silver. Yet, if frustration within Kondrashev were forming, it was not with London, the SIS, or his task Diomid, but rather with the structure of his own Soviet intelligence service. Moscow Center centralized decisions. Agents in the field were given no leeway in how to operate, and a deviation from the prescribed route would cause career-ending infuriation. Kondrashev was allowed to take no initiative in handling his task, whom, after the first meeting in October of 1953, had failed to show for the subsequent. One no-show, and Kondrashev was only slightly worried, but the first was followed by a second, and ultimately a third. Kondrashev began to worry about Diomid, but his frustration again was with his own masters, who, after he suggested intercepting Diomid on his way to his office at the heart of Whitehall, rejected the suggestion out of hand. All Kondrashev could do was wait. 
Finally, it was at the fourth meeting that Diarmid showed. In the dark of a cinema, the British man at the centre of British intelligence made an appearance. To Kondrashev, he explained that the recent defection of KGB agents by the name of Petros to Australia had spooked him. Laying low seemed only the right thing to do. Kondrashev and Diarmid were right to worry. Kondrashev was in London on the thinnest of explanations of cultural relations. He was known to British SIS, and therefore his entering and leaving of his own embassy was recorded by British agents. So on this winter's day in London, 1954, where the smog hung low, rising only just above the streets, and the pavement slab shone with the damp that persisted in an English city in winter, Kondrashev left the embassy knowing the SIS were watching. A Soviet chess delegation was departing and Kondrashev's cover required him to escort the delegation to the airport. SIS took note. After waving a farewell to the delegation and leaving the airport, Kondrashev proceeded to the city where he began to shop, walking in and out of multiple shops and entranceways. SIS had Kondrashev's itinerary for the day and twice throughout the day, SIS checked in. After his final stop, a visit to a cinema to watch a movie, SIS watched as Kondrashev walked to a bus stop, waited for, and then boarded the typical red double-decker of London and took a seat. SIS followed the bus. The warm breath of those on board clouded the windows, the view of a hazy London blocked further by the moisture that gathered on the windows. Furthermore, the air was blighted by the heavy smoke of pipes and cigarettes. Seven stops later, Kondrashev alighted, walked to an awaiting embassy car, and drove off. SIS took note. As Kondrashev sat in the car, he clutched a copy of the day's newspaper, dated the 18th of January, 1954, a newspaper he had not boarded the bus with. Behind those fogged windows of that London double-decker, clouded from the eyes of SIS, Kondrashev had met in relative secrecy with Diomid, whom, within the folds of the newspaper, had handed his handler the detailed notes of the meeting of the 15th to 18th of December 1953, under which all of the key details of Operation Gold had been laid out. Kondrashev must have smiled as he traveled in the back of his car. In his hand, he had the notes on the most audacious secretive operation the West was yet to undertake. Yet now there was nothing secret about it. They had the names of those involved in the meeting, the number of the cables that were to be targeted, everything. On his return to the Soviet embassy, Kondrashev had the notes typed up and dispatched to Moscow, and a full report was submitted on the 12th of February. All of this before even the construction of the warehouse built to hide the tunnel activity was begun. If the CIA and SIS believed they were the greatest at the spy game, they were sorely mistaken. What transpired over the next months was all carefully observed by the Soviets, but they found themselves in a tricky position. If they were to expose the CIA and SIS plan, they likely would reveal Diomid. Unwilling to expose their source at the heart of the SAS planning, a new office 
was set up to handle information from agent sources concerning audio operations under the command of Deputy Director of the Soviet First Chief Directorate, Arseny Vasilyevich Tishkov. Tishkov wrote in a directive, The measures work out for removing, neutralizing, or utilizing these audio surveillance operations for disinformation against the adversary must be based on well-thought-out cover for the sources of such information in order not to compromise the real source, and in order to ensure that such measures are not taken at once against all operations. But gradually, in working out and implementing such measures, it is necessary to observe the strictest secrecy. Proposals for dealing with this material are to be reported to me, and all measures on this question will be implemented only with my permission. With this, none within the DDR or Soviet forces could take action against the tunnel without Tishkov's express permission. So they allowed the CIA and SIS to spend their millions on their tunnel. And meanwhile, Tishkov would allow only for correct information to flow along the lines they were to tap. No disinformation, for one wrong move might burn their source. They even went so far as to inspect regularly the so-called American radar station that the warehouse was disguised as. Not to do so equally would have raised suspicions. It is highly probable that when the American chef made the wrong turn to the wrong Frankfurt, the Soviets allowed that information to flow along the lines they knew the West had tapped, a gift of sorts. Yet the tunnel's existence remained highly secretive within the KGB's own ranks. Worried about what information the CIA and SAS might be gleaming from their lines, the KGB set up their own tap on the Karlshorst line. Monitoring their own people revealed an appalling lack of security with codes often not being used. A review was ordered and those operating the lines were given a good lecture in good secretive conduct. When the year ticked over into 1956, the tunnel had been fully operational for three months and already there was a backlog in processing the tape. Still, the CIA and SIS, for all their power, had no idea that their greatest scheme had been compromised from the get-go. However, due to the Soviets' preservation of Diamid, they were still able to harness some valuable information. But things were changing in Moscow. Nikita Khrushchev, first secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, and Nikolai Bulganin, premier of the Soviet Union, were beginning to consider shutting down their ideological enemies program. Khrushchev, wishing to expose the Western Allies' deceit and their constant position that they adopted of being righteous, wanted to expose them in the most public way possible. Khrushchev was frustrated at the American position that emanated across the West that the Soviets could do no good. David Murphy writes, He, Khrushchev, was dissatisfied with the international situation, feeling that neither Soviet diplomatic recognition of the Bonn government nor the withdrawal of Soviet forces from Austria following the state treaty had advanced Soviet interests as anticipated. Khrushchev was, however, concerned a discovery of the tunnel by the KGB would hamper relations with the British, whom he had a state visit organised with in April. Thus he ordered the KGB to find another way. It was decided... Therefore, the discovery of the greatest and most audacious underground espionage act of the Cold War was to belong to the DDR. 
For those on Operational Gold, the first worry began when the Volkspolizei began talking about the flooding of cable vaults and the need to fix problems to restore communications. But this naturally was just a cover-up to give pretext to discover the tap. There was the matter, though, of detecting exactly where the cable was tapped and not revealing the mole in the British Secret Intelligence Service. In Karlshorst, the Soviets agreed the discovery would be made by those who had no idea of the tunnel's existence to ensure authenticity. Signal troops began an above-ground survey that purposefully started in other locations and slowly meandered towards the Schönefelder Chausee. Yevgeny Petrovranov of the First Directorate later stated, From advanced information by our friend Diomid, we determined the shortest possible route to the Schönefelder Highway from the American cover installation, and we concentrated on that point. So that was it. The presumption that the Americans would have planned a tunnel that would have taken the least amount of effort would allow for the Soviets to find it in the easiest way, by plotting, quite simply, the shortest route. In the depths of night, as the clocks read 10 to 1, on the 22nd of April 1956, a team of men with shovels arrived at the marked spot of the Schönefelder Chausee. 40 to 50 men were detected at a distance by Americans watching with night vision goggles. The men spread out and began to dig to the Americans' horror. Each man on the eastern side separated by a distance of little more than a meter. Quickly, the Americans alerted their command. Harvey was quick to rush to the site. An hour after the shovels had first turned over dirt on the eastern side, the men of the DDR hit the top of the tap chamber. To those in the tunnel, they could hear the voices above. Harvey alerted Montgomery, who rushed directly to site. Harvey stood in the tunnel and asked for the translators to translate the voices they could hear. Was there the chance that the men above might only detect the tap room? Mistake the round tapping tubes for a normal feature and just move on? An hour after the initial discovery of the tap room, the soldiers had managed to excavate enough earth and clear the space that they could see cables disappearing into the ground below. The East Germans called for a long-distance line specialist, whilst Harvey listened to the line between Wunsdorf and Karlshorst to determine if the Soviets knew about the discovery. Meanwhile, whilst the specialists was awaited on, all digging stopped and those in the tunnel held their breath. At 6.30 a.m., parts of the Soviet signaling command had found out about the dig and had dispatched its chief, Lieutenant Colonel Zolotchko. Soon the leaders in Moscow would be informed of what they already knew. At the dig site, the inspection of the line confirmed the cable was indeed tapped and the order went out to switch to the overhead lines. The diggers still sat by as the situation was addressed and equally below those in the tunnel continued to wait. It lasted forever, the wait. Those in the tunnel, their breath abated, could hear the discussions above, but feared leaving their seats. No one was to move. Hour after hour passed. What had begun in the dead of night now was moving past the height of day. None below could exactly determine what was transpiring above. With a scratch of metal at 12.30 p.m., the metal manhole cover hiding the vertical shaft was pried loose and slid aside by the East German workmen. 
Now they had entry to the tunnel as far as the great steel door, which depending on which source you read, was either sealed shut, meaning the workmen tunneled through the wall to circumvent it, or it was wide open. All were shocked. The scale of the operation was evidently huge. For all of this to be done, and as far as they knew, secret, was a task unbelievable. It lay abandoned, the tunnel. Those inside had quickly departed, knowing that the East had made a full discovery. Harvey had ordered a line of sandbags to be placed where the sector boundary ran and barbed wire to be placed atop. A sign was attached announcing in Cyrillic and German that it was the border between East and West. But what about the explosives? As David Murphy remembers, Harvey asked Montgomery to find General Charles L. Dasher, the US commandant, and asked his permission to arm and if necessary, detonate the explosive charges lying in the tunnel. Montgomery, looking somewhat the worse for wear, finally located Dasher at a reception in the Van Zee Yacht Club being given for General Maxwell Taylor, the US Army Chief of Staff in Berlin on an official visit. After hearing Harvey's message, Dasher asked if there was a possibility that Russians might be killed or injured. When told possibly, Dasher said that he would not approve unless Harvey could guarantee in person that no one would be hurt. Clearly no such guarantees could be given, so this option was abandoned. At 2.20 p.m., the Soviets and East Germans entered the main section of the tunnel and began to advance. Harvey had stayed behind. Apparently, he had set up an unloaded 50 caliber machine gun as a visual deterrent to any of the opposing side wandering any further toward the Americans. As the footsteps of the Soviets rang louder and clearer, Harvey pulled on the bolt. The unmistakable sound quickly turned the boots of the Soviets back along the tunnel. 3.35 p.m., the cables were cut, and at 3.50, the microphones in the tunnel equally went dead. Operation Gold was over. But was it a great success or an incredible failure? In Moscow, the already prepared response was being enacted. It was important that they showed a cool and level head if they wanted to ensure that the world's reaction was that the Americans were at fault. The chief of staff of Soviet forces wrote a letter protesting to the American forces in Europe, which was to be published in the press. The press was to be invited from both East and West papers to inspect the tunnel and witness the lengths the British and Americans were prepared to go to undermine the Soviet position and potentially world peace. Yet it was key that despite the British equipment that filled the tunnel, blame from the Soviets was to be solely leveled at the Americans. It was after all their money that had financed the scheme, and they, after all, were the major opponent in this post-war world. If the Soviets felt they had the upper hand with the press, the Americans had different ideas. As the Soviets prepared a press conference to highlight the moral betrayal of relations, the Americans had already published the operation in its own papers as a great successful endeavor of the American capacity in daring undertakings. The Soviets documented the tunnel with both stills and newsreel cameras. In the photographs taken at the entrance, the American warehouse is clearly visible in the background. Yet all this did little to shake the unfathomable belief of the Americans that they could do no wrong. For not only days, but for months and years, the East Germans used the tunnel for propaganda. 
Many school children of the DDR were toured around the installation. But how successful the tunnel was for its original purpose is up for speculation. Did the Soviets put too much effort into protecting Diomid, therefore allowing secretive information to pass along the cables for fear of his discovery? Or was all truly sensitive information passed along the overhead cables, which were almost impossible to tap without being noticed? Either way, each side claimed some sort of victory in the Great Cold War. The tunnel eventually was closed down, even to the DDR. The site was erected as a memorial which stood until the fall of the Berlin Wall that between 1961 and 1989 ran above the tunnel's remains. Eventually, the construction of tunneled sections of a new Berlin autobahn led to the excavation and removal of a surviving segment which was later placed in the Berlin Allied Museum. Today, a few small signs stand in its place to remember this audacious operation. As for Diomid, the British mole who revealed Operation Gold to the Soviets, he was relocated to Berlin in 1955 before the tunnel's planned discovery. He continued to work for the KGB and MI6 until the British grew suspicious that one of their agents was a mole and slowly suspicion began to center on one person, an agent by the name of George Blake. Blake was summoned from a posting in Lebanon and in the three-day interrogation, he fully confessed to the MI6 interrogators that he was in fact the KGB spy known as Diomid. Sentenced to 42 years in prison, his story might have ended behind bars, but in another audacious act, Diomid Blake would die in Moscow in December 2020 after an incredible escape from a British jail. To discover more about George Blake, join the Arctung History Patreon at patreon.com forward slash History for an exclusive episode releasing only to Patreons in the coming weeks. Thank you for listening to Tunnel Traitor King Gold, an Arctung History podcast written and presented by myself, Simon J. James. To help support the Arctic History Podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash History and become a Patreon from as little as one euro a month. To find out more about the Arctic History Podcast and discover insights into the episodes, follow on Twitter at Arctic History. From me, until next time, goodbye.